I'm James Brierson, and welcome to an all-new edition of the Carolina Weather Group for this Wednesday, July 28th, 2021. Thanks for joining us right here on the audio podcast of the Carolina Weather Group. Now, as you may know, this week's episode is with North Carolina State climatologist Dr. Kathy Dello, and we're bringing it to you in two parts. The first part you'll hear in just a moment is the same that maybe you heard on YouTube, and now you're joining us over here on the audio form, because coming up in about 17 minutes, we'll get to part two that is only being heard right here on our podcast feed, which means if you've already heard the first part of this conversation, you're welcome to skip on ahead to about 17 minutes or so, or if this is the first time you're hearing our conversation with Dr. Dello, then sit back and relax, because an all-new edition of the Carolina Weather Group starts right now. Here's Evan Fisher. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Carolina Weather Group. We are here tonight with Dr. Kathy Dello of the North Carolina State Climate Office. We're super thankful that she's given us some time tonight. We're excited to chat with her. Uh, it's been a long time coming. She is the North Carolina State Climatologist, which is a bit of a, a lengthy title, right? Some people are, what is a climatologist? Um, that's a question we're going to cover tonight. We're, we're really excited for this, and we're going to chat more about North Carolina climate and uh, everything that the North Carolina State Climate, North Carolina State Climate Office does. Uh, Kathy, one thing that we love to do with our first-time guests is ask them about their weather journey. How did you get into all of this? Yeah, so I am from upstate New York, western New York, as I'm supposed to say as a New Yorker, and um, lake effect snow just really blew me away that you could get feet of snow in the course of a day. And I decided that, you know, this was something that I needed to study, but also as a precocious preschooler, I went outside during recess and saw that the clouds were moving. And we had learned that day that we're on a planet that rotates, but you can't feel it. So I thought I had discovered something super big and went up to my teacher and was like, you said we can't feel it or see it, but I see it. And she's like, those are the clouds. So just built up this, this huge curiosity about kind of what was going on around me and what was going on with the weather. And I was dead set on being a meteorologist. So Kathy, I have to ask you, um, we have a few of our folks who grew up in, in your area up there. What was the uh, biggest uh, lake effect snow event that you remember? So I remember the, so I'm going to age myself here, the storms in the early nineties. Uh, one was an ice storm in 1991 and then the 93 snowstorm. And we were out of school for about a week, which is unheard of kind of in Western New York. You wow. get to school right, when yeah. it's snowing, but we were sledding and building igloos. It was fantastic. So it's the one time that New Yorkers can't doubt us uh, Southerners about closing everything during snow. <laughs> nope. <laughs> Except I'm guessing they probably, y'all had about three feet of snow while it only takes about three quarters of an inch down here. <laughs> yeah. When we were building igloos, it was basically just tunneling through like what the plow had built up. Maybe one day we'll get to experience that. Maybe just in the mountains. We won't, we won't wish that on the Piedmont. That might be too much. No. <laughs> so tell us what a state climatologist does. What do you do over there at the DSCO? Yeah, so we are the state's climate and weather kind of knowledge repository. We keep the climate data for the state. And I like to tell people the state climate offices have evolved over time. You know, it, they started in the 70s and it, it was truly a man in a filing cabinet who would kind of write down records and file them away. Clearly, we've evolved beyond that. I'm not putting anything in a filing cabinet these days. But what we do is kind of we're the, the nerve center, the knowledge center for anybody who wants to understand North Carolina's climate and weather. So people come to us for research. 
people come to us for outreach and extension. We work with K-12 students. We work with North Carolina Cooperative Extension, and they're all in all 100 counties. And then we do monitoring. We run the North Carolina Econet, which sends 1.5 million observations a day back to Raleigh. Wow. So we are monitoring North Carolina's environment every day. Wow. That is a lot of data. <laughs> uh, anyone who knows the podcast knows that I'm a, a huge fan of the Econet. Uh, Kathy and, and the crew does a great job at the state climate office. They, they've got stations everywhere from, uh, let's see, the furthest west one, frying pan, perhaps? I think so. Okay, frying pan is the furthest west. Um, now that I've gotten myself into geography, I might as well go ahead and pitch the question. Uh, there's a new furthest east station coming. Uh, can, can you chat about that? Yeah, so we are putting up a station in Nags Head this summer. It's been a hole in our network. If you look at a map, we don't have any stations on the Outer Banks. We have one on Baldhead Island, and we get a lot of really fantastic, interesting info from there. So it only made sense for us to expand into this place that is so interesting climatologically and weather-wise. So we'll be at Chalky's Ridge State Park. Um, and that gives us an opportunity both on the education side, because we have people that will be visiting the park and learning a little bit more about North Carolina's weather and climate through the Econet. And then from a monitoring standpoint, uh, we have stakeholders who have requested a site, especially ahead of hurricane season, to understand a little bit more about their local weather. Kathy, um, we call this like a mesonet program and several states have those, but tell us what goes into put one of those weather stations there. I mean, what are all instruments? What all are you observing, um, taking in data? What, what does that look like? Yeah, so it is a um, 10 meter tower. So they're not small. So when we were thinking about the Outer Banks, it had to be in a place where it wasn't going to be next to a million dollar beach house, obviously. And we're putting all sorts of sensors on these towers. We measure soil moisture, we measure temperature at different levels. We me measure wind at different levels, which is good for understanding inversions and fire weather, which they are interested in Nags Head as well. We're measuring solar radiation, um, you know, precipitation through an impact sensor and a rain gauge. Really, we have all the bells and whistles except for cameras, which our colleagues and New York State have. Yeah, th those stations are amazing. Uh, the, the amount of data, 1.5 million. Holy cow, I can't imagine uh, what you guys must have to go through to, to sort that QC every day. That is a lot of algorithms, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, and it does get QC'd every day, and it catches most of um, the big errors. Sometimes things slip through, and Evan, you've caught some stuff before. <laughs> and folks email us, and we love that because you know, it's always great to have another set of eyes checking your work. But it's a ton of data, um, and it gets ingested into the state climate office every five minutes, except for Mount Mitchell, which comes in every 15 minutes. Hmm. Oh, interesting. I did not I did not know that. That's good yeah, we don't have cell service up at Mount Mitchell, so we have to use an old modem. Interesting. Huh. I didn't realize that. Well, with the online products that you'll have, I, I know there's a big overhaul earlier this year to introduce a bunch of new web products, one of which is Cardinal. Um, can you chat a little bit about some of the stuff that you released earlier in the year? Yeah. So going back to how the state climate offices have evolved, it's no longer Kathy sitting with her filing cabinet of observations. We have all these data coming in from our network, from NOAA, from USGS. And we want to think of a way to serve it up to North Carolinians in a way that's accessible for them to access and use and kind of repurpose for, for their needs. So we had a system called Kronos. It was developed in 2003, 
So Kronos was old enough to vote by 2021. <laughs> and no online system needs to, to be around for 18 years. And if you looked into Kronos, the, the code started to get a little bit wacky. So we decided to start from scratch. And we went to North Carolina Cooperative Extension and said, what do you need from us? What would make your job easier? when you can't always, you know, call up the folks at the state climate office and get the data that you need. So they talked about some online tools that would be really helpful, a, a kind of three-pronged approach for getting the data. We have Station Scout, which is a way to just kind of quickly look at the data and plot some graphs. Cardinal, which is a way to get a lot of data. And then an API, which Evan, I know you've used, which is for more of our um, more advanced users. Yeah, I, I do like to pull more data than I probably should. And it, it's nice to be able to now. Um, I really appreciate all the new products. Um, it's super, super interesting. And one note for our podcast listeners, I don't know if anyone out there actually cares about Grandfather Mountain Winds as, as much as I do. But I did just notice last night um, that a, a platform has been re-updated, I guess, re-uploaded for the Grandfather Mountain uh, weather station, which is it's not technically part of the Econet. But it is. It was part of Kronos, I guess, probably the way to say it. Um, and it, it's fabulous. I'll tweet out a link on the Carolina Weather Group uh, page, and you can find it uh, on June sixteenth of twenty twenty one. Uh, Scotty, I guess I'll pass to you. I've been talking a lot. <laughs> yeah, well, Kathy, one thing um, that's new this year, twenty twenty one, is the new climate norms, and uh, we get those. I think it's every thirty years, and so we've kind of closed out that cycle and. Um, can you tell us a little bit about why um, why we take like 30-year snippets and then what has changed from the last cycle to this current cycle? Yeah, so we look at 30-year snippets of climate because we know that day-to-day weather is variable and day-to-day climate is variable. And these were developed even before you know the climate really started warming. So um, they were used for kind of growing purposes and energy purposes. It was a good baseline for everybody to operate from. And they're updated every 10 years, and they're obviously still updated every 10 years. So we got the 91 to 2020 normals a couple months ago. And what they're showing, unsurprisingly, is warmer temperatures. So when you shift that baseline and you have those decades where it has been warmer, it shows up in the averages. But then we're seeing some parts of the country get wetter, including coastal North Carolina, but some parts of the country get drier. We're seeing a, a massive drought out and the Western US where I used to live, but also Western North Carolina shows up as dry in the new normal. So we're, we're seeing some in-state variability as well. I, I see Scotty already scrambling at the keys going poll numbers. Yeah, so one one thing that we're working on at the state climate office, which I think is, is super cool with this conversation, Kathy, is a, a new like climate trends analysis tool. And I, I've been poking around at it the past few days and it is really interesting to see how parts of the Carolinas, despite how incredibly wet it has felt, there are parts of the Carolinas that have actually gotten drier um, and a significant trend towards dryness over the last um, 30, 50, 30 to 50 years, I should say. Yeah. I mean, one of the fun things and tough things about working in North Carolina is that our terrain is so variable. So even without a changing climate, you know, the the fun fact that Lake Toxaway is the wettest spot in the state and Asheville's the driest spot and they're so close to each other. We have all this internal variability going on within the state. And then obviously we've got our tropical systems. We get the direct hits on the coast in the east, but then we get these remnants that creep up from the Gulf hits 
in Western North Carolina. And we saw it last year kind of come at us from both ways. Yeah, I think many parts of West North Carolina are still recovering in a way from 2018. And that was an incredibly wet year. Um, and it, it did set the stage for a series of, of wet months going through the rest of 2018, 2019, 2020. It just felt like it, didn't, it wouldn't let up there for a while. And, and now we find ourselves in a bit of a, a drier pattern. I think Mount Mitchell is actually having its driest year to date on record, um, which is, is pretty unusual considering they had 50 inches by this time in 2018. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. We came off North Carolina's second wettest year on record in 2020. We had this really wet winter um, in Raleigh-Durham. It was the second wettest on record. Then we went to the driest spring at Raleigh-Durham Airport. And then the first 10 days of June have been extremely wet. So these swings between very wet and very dry. And farmers are telling us it's too wet to plant. And then when I can get in and plant, the soils are too dry and my crops are, are being compromised. So it's a big conundrum. Well, while we're on that topic, um, you know, we... As of this taping in mid-June, you were talking about how dry it's been, especially um, in eastern North Carolina. Uh, as a climatologist, I guess drought is one of your biggest things you have to monitor for the state and probably one of the most um, dangerous things, not only because of, you know, we could lose water resources, but also a lot of agriculture in, in the state of North Carolina. So uh, if you don't mind, could you tell us a little bit about drought and, and why it's important that we don't get in that condition as, 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 as we have here currently. And, you know, I guess 2016 was the last drought that we saw here in the Carolinas. So drought's not a good thing. I know people complain about it raining all the time, but we actually do need some rain from, from week to week. Yeah. And it's interesting. So really a lot of my background is in drought. I was in Oregon for 10 years uh, and I was our drought person in Oregon and we had or drought of record in 2015. Since then, there's now been two more droughts of record, but almost no snowpack throughout the winter. And that's how the West gets its water supply. So I learned a whole lot about you know, why, why drought matters to people, who needs the water, when people need water at different times, how different groups compete for water. You know, it's, it's incredibly fraught and water is something that we all need to live. We can't just you know, get by without it. So when I got here, I started poking around on what are the droughts of record that I need to know? What, what's the 2015 drought in North Carolina? And it's obviously 2007. And, you know, it's, it's scary when you learn that towns were close to running out of water. So Durham had less than 100 days of water supply. The city of Atlanta, this was a big southeast drought, had um, water restrictions in place. Uh, Falls Lake in Raleigh, it did not look like a lake at that point. So we have droughts in the Southeast U.S., obviously, um, even if it's kind of not like the arid West. And, you know, here we see more of these flash drought situations, which is what I would define what happened from winter to spring to kind of what's happening now in the summer. Really, really wet to really dry, flipping back and forth between these extremes. Whereas in the West, we've seen on the drought monitor that drought evolve over the past few months. And here, I mean, we grow a lot of crops in North Carolina. I just looked this up today. I don't remember why, but North Carolina is number nine for uh, crop growing expenditures in the country. So we still grow a lot of the country's food. We need water, obviously, to live. Um, and some of the, the towns in North Carolina in the past few weeks issued some voluntary restrictions. So 
they weren't required, but maybe people should start to think about saving some water. And that also kind of leads into um, a tool that I use a lot um, from, from your website, and that's the, the Fire Danger, uh, which I really enjoy that product and so glad that it's available. But uh, those drought conditions also uh, can lead to wildfires. And uh, thankfully, I, you know, during this drought spell, I don't recall of any major events happening. So uh, correct me if I'm wrong with that, but uh, I, I think we relatively got lucky during this dry span that we've not seen big fire events. Yeah. And, um, you know, people ask me, what are the climate and weather events that keep me up at night? A 2016 fire, like what happened in Gatlinburg, keeps me up at night. People dying in a fire that kind of just exploded in a very dry year. We didn't have any fires that I know of in the past few weeks, but certainly the fire danger increases in these hot, dry periods. Yeah, it, it absolutely does. 2016 was a, a harrowing experience for those of us who, who live in the western part of the state, and as well as everyone who was involved in emergency management, the climatology office. It was just, it was not a good year. It was not a good fall. How about that? All right, that is part one of our conversation this week with North Carolina State Climatologist, Dr. Kathy Dello. We will get to part two, the audio exclusive, in just a moment. First, a reminder that if you would like to unlock early access to Carolina Weather Group episodes just like this one, then you can join us over on Patreon to become an insider. For just $3.99 a month, you will unlock early access to select episodes, including... This episode, which was made available earlier this week to Patreon listeners, you'll also unlock access to exclusive clips that are not included in so many of our episodes. That's patreon.com slash Carolina Weather Group. You can find the link in the episode show notes. Let's pick up our conversation now. We'll welcome in Frank Strait to join the conversation, and he picks up our conversation with North Carolina state climatologist, Dr. Kathy Dello, and our conversation about wildfires. Uh, Kathy, my question uh, about wildfires is exactly at what level of drought do you start becoming concerned for those uh, wildfire uh, situations? Uh, I, I realize it can happen in either a short, medium or long term drought, but uh, exactly what triggers you to start saying, hey, this is a potential problem and start you know, talking about it with people in your office and maybe passing it along to emergency managers? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, it would be a different combination of factors. So the fire weather portal, which Scotty mentioned, is a great way to start to look at some of the, the parameters coming together. We can look at these long-term drought indices. You can look at the drought monitor, precipitation deficits, uh, radar, kind of, and also adding in a forecast and seeing what might be coming. I think we get concerned on windy, hot days. So we had a few red flag warnings out in May, which, you know, like I said, coming from the West, that was something I would see on my phone all the time. I, I thought I'd clicked on Corvallis, Oregon weather when, you know, I saw them come up for Raleigh. So we start looking at those combination of factors, but I would say that it's always kind of in the back of our minds because people are doing prescribed burns at certain times and, you know, you want to make sure that the conditions are right for that and they don't get out of control. I think the, the rapid drying uh, post kind of in March was especially concerning for emergency managers and people who are thinking about fire. We were lucky, though, that our soil moisture was you know so high because we came off that wet winter. So it did buy us a bit of time. I guess there's no kind of one trigger. Um, when we start talking drought, we obviously start talking fire. Y'all do a, a substantial amount of education outreach. Um, 
who do you do that with? And can you tell us a little bit more about the, what goes into those programs? Yeah, so um, we do a lot of K-12 work and fifth grade in particular in North Carolina has weather and climate in their standards. And I noticed I, I got here in July of 2019 and by the end of September, I was getting a lot of messages from teachers and I'm thinking, this feels very strange that they're all emailing now. Well, it turns out October tends to be the time that they teach weather and climate in the classrooms. And we got a lot of notes saying, we just don't know what to do. We don't know where to start. You're the experts. So one of the things that um, we decided to do in part because of the pandemic was upgrade our educational materials, build some modules and curriculum for people to use so that they could teach weather and climate in the classroom and, and feel very confident doing it. And then we do outreach pretty much with anybody who wants to know something about the weather and climate. So I've done um, some things with Protect Our Winters, which is a, a group of basically Olympic athletes who want to protect the environment because that's their livelihoods. Uh, we do a lot with Cooperative Extension. So they have agents in all 100 counties. They're a fantastic resource for us. Um, we do a little bit of a train the trainer approach. Here's kind of the big things about weather and climate in North Carolina, then they can take that to their constituents, cities, towns, uh, Kiwanis clubs, master gardeners. Uh, the, the requests are almost too numerous. There's a lot of thirst for this sort of thing. So we try to hit as many as we can. Glad we got you because we were one of those requests. Um, you're talking about uh, outreach and education. And so uh, something that you guys are, are starting at least uh, for this summer is um, kind of like a citizen science program where you were talking about urban heat island. Um, so A, could you tell us uh, or tell those folks who who may not have heard the term urban heat island what that is and then B, what, what the project is? Yeah, this is something that's really exciting. So an urban heat island is a, a part of the city that tends to be warmer than the surrounding areas. And this is because of pavement. So we know that wearing a black t-shirt on a hot day is worse than wearing a white t-shirt or concrete and kind of the buildings and the infrastructure that we put in place. Um, and then areas that are tree, tree lined and forested and nice parks tend to be cooler. And in cities like Raleigh and Durham, we, we see that a lot of these areas line up with lower income areas. So the hottest parts of the city are where marginalized people tend to live. Um, one of the things that we're going to do with this project, which is funded by NOAA, is send out volunteers with sensors on their cars to drive around Raleigh and Durham on a very hot day. Uh, this Saturday looks really nice, but we don't have the sensors. We need a day without clouds, really hot, and without rain. So looking for those three ingredients. And they will drive routes around the city that we've picked. And we will send the data back to our partners at NOAA, and they'll send us maps of Raleigh and Durham and show us what, where the hottest spots are in the city. So we've seen in other cities that you can be 10 to 15 degrees Fahrenheit warmer in some of these areas than the surrounding kind of suburban rural areas of the city. So the city can then start to focus some mitigation efforts and adaptation efforts like cooling in some of these areas or education, because we know that most heat related deaths are preventable. So this is a very exciting project. We have over 400 volunteers signed up we're going to send some people out with kestrels and pocket labs as well. We're going to um, uh, supplement some of the work we're doing with other surveys and kind of experiences and heat. So 
we are very excited about it and it will happen in mid-July. We just don't know the day until about two to three days out. That's fascinating. So, uh, a, what kind of sensors are these? Just, I know you mentioned Kestrel, so just kind of like thermometer type things. And B, is there any plans to maybe extend this into like the Charlotte area or Greensboro, um, maybe in the years to come? Yeah, so I honestly don't know the ins and outs of the sensors, but they, they are much like Kestrels. Um, actually, they're, I, they're a little bit more like pocket labs because they can take a continuous reading uh, a little bit better than a Kestrel. Uh, we would love to extend this into other cities. We went with Raleigh and Durham in the application one because I'm here, but uh, we had partners who were willing and able in the city of Raleigh, Durham County, both science museums. It was kind of a natural uh, thing that came together, but certainly we want to do this in Charlotte and the other cities in North Carolina. And there's a lot of interest in extreme heat. Obviously it's affecting so many people and it's getting worse. I can see this program rolling out into other North Carolina cities in the next few years. And we're, we're seeing a trend, um, maybe not a trend, maybe it's happened a lot and we're just now noticing it as radar capabilities get better and better. But we're starting to see these like urban heat island showers and storms pop up over the metropolitan, over the downtown area. In fact, um, a couple weeks ago in Charlotte, you know, we had this, this thunderstorm that just kind of parked on the city and, and created a lot of flooding. So uh, that, I guess, you know, down the road, maybe that could incorporate and help determine where these uh, these urban heat island storms may pop up at. Yeah, absolutely. I did a drought interview the day after that storm in Charlotte. <laughs> <laughs> Log- logged on and was like, yeah, things, things are looking a little bit better. A little bit better. <laughs> I think Charlotte got like anywhere between three to five inches out of that one storm in that one day. So that, that, yeah, that, that happens sometimes, but anyway, over to you, Evan. I'll, I'll stop about my herb, urban heat island stuff because I just find that fascinating. Thank you, Scotty. Yeah. So we're getting close to this, the end of this interview and Kathy, we really appreciate your time with us uh, before we let you go while we still have you. Is there anything else open-ended question here? Is there anything new coming out of the state climate office in the coming weeks, months? year or so that you'd like to share? Well, this is, I don't know, a really exciting time for climate. People are very hungry for information. You're seeing this renewed call for a national climate service, which would be an amped up version of the state climate offices, you know, across the country and how that may work. You know, I'm not the one who figures out those details, but it's coming up because everybody kind of wants climate services. And I, and we at the office, can't fulfill every request that comes in just because of capacity. So one of the things we try to do is build tools. And Evan, you're working with us this summer on a few of those that can put some of the data into people's hands. And you and I have talked about maybe some different ways of displaying state climate office data in a way that can resonate with somebody who's not thinking about weather and climate all the time and just wants to get outside for a hike or a swim. Um, So I would say look for that. I would say also look for more of these community-driven projects like the Urban Heat Island Project. When you put science in the hands of just everyday normal community members, one, you empower them to be a scientist. You don't need a PhD to be a scientist. Uh, It piques people's curiosity and then kind of connects them to the place that they're living and they start to ask questions about what weather and climate means for them. So I think that approach is really unique, really valuable, and we may start using it for other things, sea level rise, flooding, um, kind of tracking other metrics around the state. 
and also we we have new people joining us um it's a really exciting time for the state climate office i've now been here two years and yay uh feel like i've kind of figured out what some of the needs are what some of the wants are and connecting with some of the universities folks like you guys who put on this this wonderful podcast and live show you know all the people who are interested in weather and climate in the carolinas you know there, we, we're not going to run out of ideas or um, things to do. So we love to hear from people. Even if I say if we have capacity issues, we're always you know, open to hearing feedback. We made a page of Grandfather Mountain data because you weren't the only person who asked for it. <laughs> and people notice when, when things are missing. But really, we're here to serve all 10.5 million North Carolinians in understanding their climate and weather. Effie, I have one more question for you. Um, this is... Uh kind of North Carolina slash Oregon related. So you, you moved from the West coast to the East coast. I want to know your first experience with the Carolina wedge. <laughs> what was it, it was like? Soon after, it was soon after I got here. Um, it was one of those days where it was supposed to be, you know, 85 and I watched the temperature not move from 57 all day. Um, so that, that was a, a nice experience, but I did go to school on the East Coast. I got my undergrad and my master's on the East Coast. So I was, I was familiar what these mountains could do for us. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, the weather, it, it's been a change. The summers are a bit more humid and hot here and it rains kind of all year round most of the time. Uh, but I don't know. I love being in North Carolina. There's so many good things about it. I can say we're happy to have you and uh, you, you're doing some great stuff and we can't wait to, uh, to see what else is coming out. We'd love to uh, love to have uh, a part of that. So if anything we can do at the Carolina weather group, you let us know. And Evan, I'll, I'll toss it over to you so you can close us out. Uh, before we leave, Kathy, we'd like to give you, like to give our guests the opportunity to uh, give us their, give out their social media information, their, their company's information. So that folks want to reach out, and they're in more uh, they can so a uh, website a social media handle social media handle yikes uh, how can we yeah reach <laughs> so i'm at kathy dello k-a-t-h-i-e d as in dog e-l-l-o like jello on twitter um i lock down all the others so those are my own personal areas <laughs> so you won't find me there but i'm also not hard to find kind of in the Carolina weather and climate space. Uh, and, and the website for the State Climate Office, where can folks get that? Yeah, that's climate.ncsu.edu. We made a new website in part due to some user feedback, uh, a website that better displays our mission areas. The, the last one just kind of had a weather map when you got to it and people were a little bit confused as to, <laughs> what, is this an office or is this just a, a weather map? And also to um, launch our new tools. So check it out. Um, like I said, we're always open to feedback. Uh, thank you so much for coming on tonight, Kathy. Uh, panel, Scotty Powell, Frank Strait, Evan Fisher here. We, uh, thank you for listening tonight, and we hope you have a wonderful evening wherever you are out in the world. Take care.